Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the White Shark Interest Podcast. Today we have something a little bit different. All our episodes so far have been a, a roundtable discussion with myself, Ricardo Lacombe, one of the admins of the White Shark Interest Group, uh, and other fellow admins and our founder. And we generally talk about shark topics uh, amongst ourselves, as suggested by you guys on the group. The White Shark Interest Group is Facebook's largest white shark-specific group. And you are welcome to join if you are not already a member. Just head over to Facebook and search the White Shark Interest Group. So instead of a roundtable discussion on your topic points today, I thought we'd do something a little bit different and have our very first guest. And that is the amazing Catherine Curzon. Now, Catherine is a shark advocate, a writer, an artist. She has toured the world, uh, talking and um educating people on shark matters she's worked on shark cage boats she's uh, studied and got degrees in the field and is generally an absolutely awesome inspiring person who i've had the pleasure of meeting personally and i thought she'd be a fantastic first guest on the show so welcome Catherine, to the podcast good morning We met some time ago. I don't know if you actually recall exactly how we met and where it was at the time. I do. It was in 2014 and it was in the evening in Simonstown in South Africa. And it was at, I think, the Brass Bell pub. It was the Brass Bell. We were just going in and we were passing and we literally just got to say, hey, how are you doing? And talk about sharks for a couple of minutes. And that was it. Yeah, because, well, we'd been filming out on Rob Lawrence's boat out in False Bay. That's right. And obviously you had been working on Chris Fallow's boat, on the other boat, as we called it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Every time we were out filming during the day, which, by the way, was for the documentary Great White Shark Legend, which, shameless plug, as always on these episodes, is available on Amazon in the US and UK. So while we were filming that, obviously we were seeing you guys on the other boat and then we'd see you on the jetty and so on. And then, yeah, we got a a very brief sort of meeting with a bit of pizza on the table, I believe. But I should backtrack slightly here. You do a lot and have done some absolutely awesome things in the world of sharks writing and your artwork and working on shark boats and doing something we're going to talk about later with a lot of like working with children and educating children about sharks how would you describe yourself and your role in the world of sharks my main role is i suppose based on my belief that i think we all have a voice and we can use that for positive change in a variety of ways So that has always been my guiding force with shark conservation, writing or actively educating people on the boats or diving with sharks. So I think it's difficult to describe me as doing or being one particular thing because it's so varied, to be honest. Sure. But I just think that the key to change is just making sure you use your voice positively because it's an amazing world. So much that we can do. Dare I say you do you do it extremely well because I think you absolutely just exude positivity when it comes to like love of the ocean, love of sharks and, and the work you've done. You do, if anybody is listening, by the way, who wants to check out uh, some of Catherine's work, you can check it out at your at your website, which I believe is com. Yes, that's right. At the time then, when we, we were out filming, myself and 
and, uh, and my wife, Rachel, when we were making that film and, and being on Rob Lawrence's boat. I never really got to talk to you about how did you actually get to end up working on Chris Fallow's shark boat out in False Bay? How did that come about? I loved sharks like many people since I was a kid. I'd always been obsessed with them and never occurred to me I'd end up working with them. But when I was at university doing a master's degree many moons ago, I did a thesis on great white sharks because someone said to me, did you know you can go and see great white sharks in South Africa? And so I went out on one of their first ever years. Right. Very, very different then. What an experience. What kind of years would this have been then? That was 2002. That would have been the time that I believe uh, Rob Lawrence and my friend Brandon Kilbride, who worked on sports, referred to as like the Wild West days. Yeah, Totally. It was um, the small boat, no bathroom. <laughs> it was hilarious. I did a sort of research expedition then as part of an organised group with a guy called um, Aidan Martin, who sadly passed away a few years later. I loved it. Went back and did my thesis on great white shark social behaviours at the time with Neil Hammerschlag. So we both joined at the same time. We started out at the same time as each other. And then I was hooked and I kept going back for holidays. And if you then fast forward to my early 30s, I'd had enough of regular life in the UK. So I didn't know how I was going to make it happen. But I just said, you know what, I have to go and fill my childhood dream of working with sharks. And Chris and Monique were very good friends by then. And as soon as they heard I'd left my job, they said, oh, will you come and work on the shark boat? We've wanted to ask you for years, but we're waiting for you to be available. This is like a dream for some people. We we get this all the time on the White Shark Interest Group. How can I get to work with sharks? How can I get involved with sharks? Given that you were working on a boat in one of the one of the very, very few places in the world, where you can, or could, unfortunately at the moment, where you can go out and rock up with a boat and see white sharks. And people dream about doing that lifestyle and doing that job. Yeah, it's incredible. What was it actually like then to go from that transition between, because this is, I mean, essentially how myself and Rachel got into sort of making that film that we made, the transition from going out there as a tourist to going out there and almost like behind the curtain, seeing the other side of it, the actual, the working with sharks as opposed to just essentially like playing with sharks as a tourist. What was that difference like? Oh, it's so different. I think for me, what I found, it, and I loved it, but it's hard work. It was sort of 13 hour days at sea, back to back trips, as well as having long days at sea. And naturally just being at sea on a rocking boat is really physically tiring. You're also needing to be at your absolute best from very, very early in the morning, I don't know, about 5am, I think we used to get up uh, into the evening. And you can never let that change. And then you've got all these guests needs you need to look after. So especially with what I was doing and taking care of them, if you've got people who are being seasick, you need to manage them. You're also trying to make sure guests can see sharks, educate them about conservation, answer any questions, make sure they're fed and watered. So it's an interesting mix because you're being a host at sea whilst also being a conservationist. Mm -hmm. In my case, trying not to be seasick a lot. I soon discovered that he doesn't work for me very well. I did get a top tip on that because I remember the first day we were out there filming and I was I was sick within half an hour and I thought, oh no, this is going to be awful. We're mm -hmm. out here for like a month filming and I'm just being sick straight away. Alison Skidmore, who was on Rob's boat, who actually yeah. said, you need to eat something. You do. I really don't want to eat right now. I've just vomited over the side of the boat and it's rocking. And she's like, no, 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 eat something. And uh, and I remember stuffing my face with a chocolate brownie and, and I was right as rain. 
Everything yeah. was fine after that. She's right. Chocolate is a something sugary, so a bit of chocolate is a really, really good cure for seasickness. Another one is lying down. It took a while to convince people, but uh, if you lie down, it for some reason it cures it. Once you get back up, you'll be seasick again. But I remember what I used to do. I'd have my huddle at the front of the boat, and you'd have people lying down like pilchards in a row. And when a shark goes past, I'm going to shout shark to you and just quickly leap up. So I remember occasionally I'd have this team of seasick people and I'd just say shark, and they'd all quickly look, see the shark and lie back down. So we got good at seasick management. But what's it like being out there so often, like every day? Do you, do you get bored of looking at great white sharks? No, I didn't. I just, I love them so much. They're such incredible animals um, that, to be honest, I was a bit like a an excited kid every day. Just getting out there and seeing them each day was really special because you get to know the sharks as well. And you don't get that when you just go for a few days unless someone's telling you about them. Whereas when you're there for two years in all, then you get to know their different personalities and watch their different behaviours. And I loved that. I thought that was that and meeting different guests were my two favourite things about the whole experience. I always love to see how people can change from going out on a boat. I mean, I was one of them going out absolutely terrified in the first instance you know i'm going out here to see great white sharks and, and actually within minutes of being out there at sea and actually seeing these amazing creatures doing what they do and not really giving us a care in the world to be honest we think they're going to be after us and trying to eat us and you know leaping out of the water at us and it's just all absolute myth and it's nonsense and it can just change seeing people's attitudes change you know that fear change is is always something why i've always been a huge advocate of uh, of cage diving absolutely it's life-changing because you actually you'd have a mixture of people on the boat people who were really keen and excited because they already love sharks then you'd have the people yeah. that had heard it was you know an adrenaline fix and cool thing to do and then the people that were absolutely terrified of sharks and I loved watching people's attitudes change and I've lost count of the number of times people would be ready to get in the cage looking absolutely terrified and you know a bit shaky and then they're like why am I doing this why am I doing this this is this is a really bad idea and they'd get in and then within minutes they'd put their head back up out of the water with the biggest smile on their face often they'd get out of the water and say I had no idea how relaxed and intelligent these sharks are they're nothing like the media portrays them cage diving in particular comes with its critics often very outspoken critics where do you think that comes from then to to not understand the power of you know I mean it's ecotourism it's a business people are running these things for as a business but it is so much more than that like you say do you think the critics of cage diving have valid points as to why cage diving is bad and why it shouldn't be it should be banned i do actually i'm very pro cage diving because of my experiences but like anything if it's done poorly then you can cause problems and i think that's the key is and i think where that perhaps those perceptions come from are either seeing things like youtube videos where a shark has hit a cage hit the bars of a cage or some sort of poor practice but if it's done really well you don't have those problems so to give you an example um with our boat it's all about the bait handling in terms of actually protecting the sharks if you've got a good bait handler then the sharks will be because they'll follow the bait they're a little bit like a puppy following a string in that sense Mm. that if you pull the bait in the right way then the shark's going to go past the cage easily and clearly but if you start trying to wind the shark up and you're pulling the bait it accidentally 
your intentionally over the cage, then that shark is focused on the bait and quite easily they can then end up bashing their nose, which is where you see those kinds of videos on YouTube. Even the critics would say right there, because I've had these discussions where I've criticised, you know, certain photographs or videos of those kind of things happening that people are all on Facebook like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this, you know, look at this five metre shark ramming into the cage. And, And you kind of jump in and try and educate people as to why this is bad, but also why it happened where you could see like a bait handler like intentionally pulling pulling a bait straight into the cage to get that adrenaline rush for guests that's that's how it's poorly done but every time i've had that discussion the critics of cage diving straight away jump in and go well you shouldn't be using baits at all that's why so how, how, how do you think how, where's your stance on on the whole issue of of baits and chum which is often misunderstood to come with baits first if you don't use baits then certainly with great whites you're unlikely to actually see any sharks which I take the point, if you don't want cage diving to be happening, then that's that's fair enough. But yeah. if you're using bait sensibly and you're not actually, as best as you can, you're not feeding the sharks and you know they're not conditioned, then I think the benefits that you get from the shark conservation and the ecotourism outweigh that. With chum, I think that's a tricky one and depends how it's used. So certainly on the boat we were on, and the operators in South Africa are really good. Um, We would have very watered down sort of skeletons of fish, really, that would be about the most of it and have a very small scent trail. And what we would find is that some days the sharks would turn up quite quickly. So you might think, oh, okay, hang on, are they conditioned to the boat? Are we affecting their their behaviour? But you'd have other days when you'd still have that scent line out there and you'd have bait in the water and you'd have no sharks for six hours and you could see them. You'd seen them hunting at dawn. They're there, but they're not interested. And I remember on one day we'd got so bored waiting that we put down a bucket just out of interest to see how um, clear the water was because it was quite a beautiful day. Put the bucket in. It was actually Nick, my husband. And then as he pulled the bucket up, a shark followed it up. So Wow. Right? The sharks, in certainly where we were, they weren't conditioned to boat scent trail, must go to the boat. They were very intelligent, curious animals and would come on their terms, absolutely on their terms. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to make there is that if then if you're using your attractants sensibly then I think you can manage your impact on them and their environment quite easily because if you had as an example if you've got no cage diving in certain areas where you have those sharks they don't have that value to them being worth more alive than dead shark fishing is a huge pressure and if you can do something to have an industry that governments recognize as um, profitable worth keeping the sharks protected and does actually help keep them alive and educates people I think that's more important if you're then managing that business and its operations properly. 100% agree with you on that for sure. The discussion around cage diving as a whole is is like a whole show in itself and something that, you know, I'd love to obviously get you back and some others and, and talk about cage diving in a, in a in a bit more depth. I've I've got hours and hours and hours of footage of a tuna head floating in the water next to the boat and sharks <laughs> just cruising past it all day long. But it's yeah. very easy, I think, for a, a critic of cage diving to go and find those odd little clips that you will find on YouTube. Oh, yeah, here's a, here's, you know, I mean, I don't know if it, there was the shark De Rossi uh, that was around, I think, while we were out there. Mm-hmm. And De Rossi just used to come out of nowhere and snatch that bait. And you can take that in isolation and go, look, look at the shark, you're feeding them, you're feeding the sharks, it's just come for the bait. Yet for another eight hours that day, you had a you had a tuna head floating in the water and no one was paying it attention. The sharks are just cruising past it. Yeah, the whole, the whole baiting thing's a very tricky, a tricky argument to win with people, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. And I do appreciate 
everyone has different opinions and I don't think you're ever going to get anyone agreeing on just one thing altogether. But remembering De Rossi is lovely. I'd forgotten. She's incredible. Super fast. I mean, I've got some, again, intense footage of like, I've literally got the camera in the water and there's nothing. And then this shark just like torpedoes towards the boat and you can just hear gary uh the fantastic gary carsten's in the back just showing the rossi and, and they're shouting across to you guys on the other boat we've got the rossi over here and you'd be like yeah we've got amber or his may or whoever else the you know the shark was it was all i think it was great fun being out there on the boats with you know your boat and rob lawrence's boat and and sadly that's not how it is in false bay at the moment no no, it's changed dramatically. Do you have any any thoughts on why that is? I mean, the Orcas, you know, Port and Starboard get mentioned, and I'm not a hundred percent convinced that that would make that number of sharks disappear for that length of time. But have you any thoughts on on what might be going on out there? I think the Orcas are a part of the problem, but I think one of the greatest concerns in the area is that there are two fishing boats that are targeting other shark species in the area and they are I believe they're longline fisheries and they're taking about a yeah. thousand sharks out per trip and so they believe that that's, those populations are collapsing and that's having the impacts then on the great white sharks and they've in fact they have actually literally just released a website that has all of the science and a pre-typed tweet that people can send that goes straight to the minister that's actually looking looking at this and it's called sharkfreechips.com yep it's been uh, it's been doing the rounds quite a lot recently again we'll uh, we'll have that link down in the descriptions if anybody wants to uh, to follow that and obviously then following the the trail of the the market you know for those fish um in some cases back to australia i believe that's right yeah being sold as flake in australia the thinking from what i understand is that that's a big part of the problem that's changing the ecology of the area and then you're seeing those great whites are not there, whether it's because they've moved or they're being fished as well. I don't know. It's heartbreaking, though. It was absolutely incredible. I'd, I still remember when we were there in 2002, and in that time, the sharks were huge. It was just so many sharks. I've still got all my data sheets from, from then, so different. And if, I, yeah, I can't quite get my head around thinking about all the different sharks that I know and them not being there anymore. You can hear it in my voice. <laughs> it's one of those areas that I do because obviously, you know, I've got two two little boys who are just at the age now where we were starting to talk about, you know, I mean, they're absolute nature lovers. My eldest boy for a time and still now is just obsessed with like marine life and squids and octopus and sharks. And as soon as those boys are old enough, we've got to take them out to False Bay. It will blow their minds and it'll change their perceptions for the rest of their lives. And we've kind of been sat saying, well, we can't do that right now. It's, it's tragic, like you say, it is. But I do have hope that if the situation, if if the factors could be identified, and I, I, I don't believe it's, I don't put it down to these two orcas. I think that's just a very good headline, orcas hunting great whites. You know, it's clickbait. People like to, to put all that. I don't, I just can't buy that that is it. Because as you will know from observing sharks in False Bay, how, how cautious they are. And, and one thing happens, you know, like if there is a, a death of a shark and there has been orcas around, or like when the O-Search boat rocked up and and the sharks disappeared and and they're very 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 cautious creatures which a lot of people don't understand because they just see the teeth and the you know and the shark week programs that these are just like like tanks in the sea you know i don't buy that two orcas do that for such a length of time i just can't buy that there's more to it and that yeah their personalities are fascinating and 
for sure they are very very cautious they have such a stress response if if one of them's injured then they will scatter like marbles for about six weeks and just Mm. stay away from the area it is therefore something that i do have a huge hope that if the situation just change if the fishing practices change or those orcas do decide to toddle off somewhere else or even i thought you know this this awful sort of pandemic lockdown situation can that change on a small scale if people are out of that area for long enough would that change the picture and will we see those come back there were some a couple of reports i heard that, that quite early on during the you know the whole lockdown situation that some sharks had been spotted back out in you know, in False Bay, but obviously no one's going out there on a daily basis to to corroborate that and, and to see that. But I do hold hope that they will come back to False Bay. They have to. It's too much of a magical place to, to, to not see that again, you know? Absolutely. And you should always hold hope. I'm a, well, I had a friend that said, if there was an award for enthusiasm, you'd get it. Lock, this lockdown can change so many things. For a start, you've everyone has the chance to step back for a minute and say, what can I do to make a difference? There is so much we can do. And if everyone does something, it makes collectively a massive difference. And I think that in itself is a reason to have hope. I've been fascinated seeing pictures, even local to myself here in, in, in England, that suddenly there's deer roaming around the city centre. Or there's a there's a badger toddling through the railway station. No way. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating to see wildlife kind of creeping back into these places. Yeah. Given a chance to breathe, nature is incredibly resilient. It, you just have to take the pressure off a little bit to see recovery. And hopefully people will see things like that and it will impact other areas of their lives where after lockdown they question how they go about their days but also the impact that they're having on the planet even just within their household indeed and i, I do fully appreciate that obviously the the lockdown situation is camp is being extremely hard on some people and i don't want anyone to think that you know it, it's not um but yes if we can find some positivity in it I, can I just switch to okay? So we we sat at a table in the Brass Bell and having a pizza, and them seeing you and Jimmy Partington and Gary Carstens there, and it's like all these people working on shark boats who've all gone and done very sort of different things. So you just to fast forward a bit, the next I kind of saw your name ping around was when you started running uh, Friends for Sharks with your husband, Nick. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that was a fascinating project. But can you just sort of tell us exactly what that is, was, and, and how that came about? So that came about halfway through my second year in South Africa, working on the boat. And Nick had joined me then um, for that season. We got, I think, halfway through the season and I uh, slipped a disc in my back, which meant I couldn't do anything, to be quite frank. I couldn't even stand up and I was on, like, traction each day. And, oh, it was crazy how this happened. Talk about meant to be. And so I was spending my days lying in bed recovering, going, okay, well, what am I going to do? Because... No one's going to employ me because I actually can't stand up, but I need something positive to focus on while I'm recovering. Because I was looking at a six months recovery and learning how to, you know, walk and be upright again over time. I went to bed one night and no word of a lie, I woke up really early and it was all in my head. I just turned to Nick and I was staring at him waiting for him to wake up. And he woke up and he was like, what? What's going on? And I said, we're going to travel the world. And we're going to talk to people all about shark conservation. And he just went, okay. I'm not sure that's what he thought. 
but he's always on board with the ideas. So yeah, so we decided that we would set up this thing, just the two of us, and we would spend, while I was recovering, we would set it up and then we would spend a year going around the world to different countries and we would organise as many free shark conservation talks, workshops and events for adults and children, any ages, and we would teach them all about the importance of sharks in the oceans. And the idea behind it being that often marine biology and those types of experiences are expensive. And so not everybody has access to learn about such cool things and that we would provide it all for free so that it became accessible and that we were raising money for for charities, shark conservation charities, where we could when we were traveling. It was kind of like, well, there's only one way to make this happen. We ran the idea by a friend and he said, I will build your website. You have to do this. That's my sponsorship. And we were like, okay, the only way we're going to do this is if we commit, by which point we didn't really have much money. So the savings, the entire savings we had left, we bought our flights there and then. I think it was five months down the line. And then we sat down very quietly just going, oh, now we have to make this happen because we've got no money left and that flight's booked. You do realise there's a little part of that that is actually insane. (laughs) It was absolutely crazy. Let's go and use all our savings to book some flights. Now that is commitment. If I'm going to do it, I do it properly. That's what I always say. I think the next thing was the friend that did the website said, you need to learn about social media. Twitter, what's that? Because at that point, I had no knowledge of anything like this. I hadn't got a background in marketing or, or comms or anything like that. So we had five months and we were in South Africa for the remainder of the season. And I was allowed to be upright for about 15 minutes. So whenever I was allowed upright, I'd do something towards this. I learned about social media a little bit at the time. In retrospect, now looking back, it certainly didn't come across like you didn't know anything about social media because it, you know, it came across extremely well from the get-go, to be fair. Ah, oh, thank you. I think I found my niche. And yeah, and we got some business sponsors that helped us out with things like, for example, Jimmy, Jimmy Partington, what a star. He sponsored us some T-shirts with our logo and some, um, you know, hoodie jumpers with our logo. So we'd have something that would at least look like we were a cohesive unit when we were doing our talks. Yeah, I sent probably over a thousand emails to, we picked different countries we would go to. And then I just contacted, I found lists of everything from schools, higher education, aquariums, social clubs, dive centres, retirement villages, everything and I just flung out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails saying this is what we're doing can we come and give you a talk we had plans for the countries because obviously we'd booked our flights because of course we didn't have money so the whole point was that we would spend as little as possible to raise money for charity as well and also because we didn't have any and no one was funding us it was self-funded so we were doing fundraising activities to get what we could but we were certainly not going to be spending money on staying in places bits and bobs like that would come through where people and um, would support us and say you can come and stay at mine for a night certain places like the cook islands we knew then we'd need to to pay for our hostel for the two weeks we were there giving talks because where else would we stay? We sort of didn't know anyone there that would be able to accommodate us. Yeah. 
So trying to like plan all of this was, it was quite frenetic. We were very fortunate actually that early on projects abroad heard about what we were doing and they invited us to come later in the tour to uh, Fiji, Cambodia and Thailand. And to, they said, if you can create a suite of lectures, you can come to each one for a few weeks and give your lectures to all of our visiting uh, volunteers as they come and go. So we would have like 10 or 11 different shark lectures on different topics. So was this about all sharks or just great white sharks? That was all sharks. And we really varied what we were doing. So depending on what people were interested in, we'd had a whole range of talks, whether it was a short, you know, half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, and all sorts of audience sizes. So by the time that we actually started, and we were back in England by that point, we had the good sort of bones of what we were doing set up and we'd fundraised some money. Nick did a freezing swim on New Year's Day in Padstow in Cornwall and the water was about... I remember seeing that on social media. It was insane, yeah. It was very worrying but very funny mm. and he was amazing but he was sick as a dog. No, I've got to stop you there. So, okay, so you've put your savings into this. Yeah. You've decided on this massive life-changing thing. You're going to tour all these countries. I mean, what countries were you, did you end up visiting? Yeah, we went England and then across to Canada, the Cook Islands, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Cambodia, Thailand. So you've put all your savings into this and you've planned this and you're kind of doing it. And you've got, so you've got no experience public speaking yeah. and, and now he's got a flu. Yeah. So there, there is maybe a, a bit of a devil's advocate and a bit of a sanity check here that says you're doing this for what reason? Is are you doing this for sharks and shark education? Yeah, it was that. I was just driven by the need to do something positive for shark conservation. I just couldn't bear the thought of not using my voice for good. Really, and that was it. I just was desperate to get out there and do my bit. Absolutely amazing. I mean, the amount of people who say, "What can I? What can I do?" And I'm not suggesting everyone should throw their life savings into a world tour because <laughs> if you can do that, fantastic. But if you don't have the means, but Matt, what a what a what a message! What a you know what an inspiration for people to say, "What can I do in terms of shark conservation?" That is ultimate. Hats off to you. You know, fifty times over, that is fantastic. You and you and Nick, that's such an achievement to even plan that and start doing that under those conditions. So hats off. Thank you. Now the thing that I remember seeing most and something that's very dear to myself we're seeing a lot of the pictures of you doing talks in schools with the kids what's it like you know going in and seeing children at, at such a young age and talking to them about you know sharks and great white sharks what kind of reception did you get oh it was amazing so precious they what we would find is that we would do talks for like kindergarten upwards and obviously we'd need to vary our content at that age and my favorite were around sort of six years to eight years old they just love everything. They were incredibly enthusiastic. They were just thrilled to be able to learn about sharks and also just talk about sharks and play at being sharks. It was amazing watching their excitement about them. And we would do shark art with them as well while we were there at the different schools. At that age group, they were really engaged and very, very positive about sharks. They loved them. You just, they couldn't get enough of them. I, I found that really, really special, really inspiring because at that age, they are very impressionable and they were getting the right impressions that sharks are amazing. People of kind of our generation, we might have had that interest in sharks, but do you see that there's a difference between how, say, we grew up looking at sharks and how kids these days look at sharks? I think so. As I know, certainly when we were growing up, you'd find that 
really when we were young, the only exposure to sharks would be those 1980s shark attack books with all the um, bloody teeth and things like that. And also it was not that long after Jaws. Yeah. Now with social connectivity and with global media, there are a lot of people doing good work about sharks. So it's that much easier for children and also parents that are interested in conservation to direct their youngsters towards positive resources, which we didn't have access to growing up. When we were filming, we did a whole little section in uh, in our documentary, which was just talking to kids about about great whites, specifically kids in South Africa, because obviously they're on the doorstep of sharks. And I I found it just amazing and inspiring how they were talking about every, every one of them started talking about ecosystems, what the sharks' place in ecosystems was. I just, yeah, I just found that the the attitude was completely different. I mean, even down to things as silly as it may seem to some that baby shark song that will drive me insane if I ever hear it again it's doing the rounds on social media and all the kids are singing baby shark and doing like hand movements and stuff that, that that's kind of a form of education or a form of like exposure to it They're like you said we just didn't get when we were that age it's still positive messaging it's still putting sharks in people's consciousness so that they're aware of them and then that might lead on to them going, ah, oh, sharks are cool, and finding out more. We always say this on, on these podcasts and in the White Shark Interest Group, everybody sort of cites Jaws. Oh, Jaws is what got me interested in sharks. Jaws was the first film I ever actually remember seeing. I grew up in Canada, and I remember being in, in a, in a driving uh, a driving theatre somewhere, and it's vague memories of it, but I remember watching Jaws as a, as a little kid. But the only thing I remember from that time, like you say, in book, particularly was always the pictures of Rodney Fox and his sort of injuries mm. but that's all I remember was those pictures of Rodney Fox showing his shark bites and the scars and things and that that did have a really you know a really long lasting effect to the point where I, I didn't even want to go in a river or a swimming pool because the fear was so strong of sharks and not to obviously put a negative on that but to see kids now that like you say they get that exposure to more positive messages and more education is is I think that's probably the most inspiring thing I saw out of the whole work you were doing with with that tour being with kids and teaching kids about sharks and I yeah it's it's inspiring to see and again anyone on the group who's saying what can I you know what can I do just just go and check out go and catch Check out Kat and Nick's work on um, on the links that we've provided, and, and go and have a look at the you know the work they were doing. But I I would like to ask you if you don't mind. I think you pretty much got burnt out doing this. <laughs> yeah, I have to laugh because it cracks me up. We were talking about this yesterday. Yeah, definitely go and do positive things for sharks. Maybe don't do it quite as intensively as I did because yeah, we did eighty seven talks in eight countries in ten months. Wow. Afterwards, I I really burnt out. I we got we actually didn't go back to England. We emigrated straight to New Zealand because we fell in love with the country on our tour. I should have seen the warning signs. I was getting more and more tired and needing to sleep in the day. And anyway, long story short, there came a, a day when one once we had our home. I sat down one evening and just said, "I'm exhausted." And then I couldn't get out of bed for about six months. Wow, a thing called adrenal fatigue, which. If anyone knows, very similar to chronic fatigue, it just means your body is quite literally burnt out and can't produce the hormones anymore that keep you awake and functioning. Yeah. I couldn't even brush my teeth without having to sit down for a rest halfway through. 
It was pretty scary, but as with all the bad things, you get the best lessons. And I'm three years into my recovery so far, and I've learned so much about wellness. And I've gone from not being able to be awake to I am now working and I can run and do run half marathons. So I'd like to congratulate you on making me feel very lazy on a on a weekly basis. <laughs> just before I get on to some of the things that obviously you're you're doing now, can I just ask you about what the whole uh, what happened with the whole cage diving situation in New Zealand? Because that actually got banned for a while, didn't it? It did. Yeah, that was quite an interesting situation here. Yeah, so we do have cage diving here, and there were two operators. My understanding of it was that there were significant concerns from the power fishing industry, which involves uh, free diving and also fishing boats in general, actually, were finding that they were sort of concerned about the sharks being a risk in terms of the potential for a shark attack occurring in the future. And enough noise was made that then it actually was banned and then changed their mind again and it became uh, reinstated. And there is, unfortunately, one of the operators then is now not running, but one of them is. So it's quite, it's a real hot potato here. It's quite controversial. New Zealand is just not one of those places that you, you ever hear about in terms of cage diving. I guess it's overshadowed by, you know, obviously the big, the big operators out in Australia. Um, but what's the what's the white shark populations like there, or other shark populations? We have lots of sharks here, actually. Um, in general, yes, it it is very different, and you're right. Not many people know about it. The cage diving here is um, a relatively small industry, especially now. There's the one operator, Discovery Channel, like Jeff Kerr and Co from Discovery. They come over relatively regularly for filming. Yeah, it's not as lucrative and well-known as other countries. Yeah, we get various different species here. And the great whites, you'll find them around both islands of New Zealand. There are, I believe, they think further north in the islands here that there are young great whites around there, which is quite interesting to see them popping up. Mm. I hear they are very social, that they are much more accustomed to being close to each other than the great whites in South Africa are quite cautious about maintaining their distance from one another. And the water's beautiful here. The colour is just stunning. It's a very sort of bluey green. So it's definitely, definitely worth a visit. It's just a little more difficult to get to. You live there now. That's That's your home. And I, again fascinated to see that amazing style of artwork you do which I think the first thing I saw you do was a whale shark so there's a theme here after the burnout uh I say after because to be honest it's had some permanent impacts but I realized that I couldn't do shark talks because I don't have the energy levels to be able to do that mm. so I was looking for new ways to help and I've always loved art, but not really done any since I was at school. So I just thought, well, I'll just do shark art because that's kind of nice and um, steady paced. I can do it from home. But then when I, if anyone wants to buy prints and art, then it's an opportunity for me to educate them about sharks and marine life. And then I also can donate some money to marine conservation causes. So yeah, I started taking that up as part of my recovery. And I do that now. And the piece you're referring to that whale shark, that took 50 hours. So what I do is I use just one pen and it's literally all dots. So it's just dots upon dots upon dots. It's a very, very unique style and it does stand out. That original one is is quite a big piece and I've done a few other ones as well. It's just a way to engage people again with remembering 
just the magic of nature, and especially the oceans. It's truly incredible. Speaking of my art, I have three different types of ocean art prints. I have a whale shark print, an octopus and a jellyfish that make a beautiful set together. And I'd like to offer those at a special price. I normally sell each of those ocean prints for 50 New Zealand dollars each and $150 for the three, but I'd like to offer them for $120 instead. So if any of your listeners are keen and would like to place an order, please get in touch. You, you're definitely a, you're definitely an ocean advocate. And it just, I, again, I, I love that you do that. You're doing writing as well for, you know, I've seen you do a few articles like scuba magazines and so on. Yeah, I write for scuba diving and marine conservation and travel outlets around the world. So articles about dive travel, shark conservation, ocean sustainability, anything with an environmental um, topic I love, but also travel destinations. And I then developed that and I now actually do marketing and comms work for various people in the travel industry and marine conservation. So writing their website content, making sure it's engaging, social media management. My ultimate dream is to be doing that work for shark conservation or shark tourism businesses. So I keep putting that out there in my head that in the future I, I would love to use my skills to do that. And I think I found my niche. I think I found my niche. I know that writing is my my um I guess my passion and also something that I'm well given the breadth of things you've you've already done, which as I say, you've ticked about three things that most people I hear who who talk about sharks and the world of, you know, marine biology, you're doing things that people absolutely dream of doing and I, again i'll say it, i think you're an absolute inspiration to people who want to get into those kind of areas of work and and stand as an example for for uh, particularly women i would say i think women in 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 the shark world is something that i think more people need to tune into that we we get a lot of men we get a lot of macho egos around sharks and and it can come along as a bit of a breath of fresh air when we see people like yourself you know you've really got a, a niche sort of body of work there and if you say you're going to work in that area and that's your dream i'm absolutely certain that i'm sure we'll be talking again when you actually do it you've also uh, taken time in there to write a book as well yeah that's right i decided that i wanted to write a book that would inspire people if they're feeling sort of bogged down with their lives or have perhaps been through some tragic circumstances that they would then have something inspiring to read to help them make changes in their life. So I wrote a book called No Damage and it's under my maiden name, Catherine Hodgson. And it was all about the circumstances that led me to leave England and take that leap to then go and work as a cage dive guide. And it, it follows that time in South Africa. And then also on to becoming a scuba diving instructor because I was terrified of scuba diving to the point that I would actually hyperventilate if I tried to put my face in the water and, and breathe the regulator. Why, why particularly the fear of scuba diving? It was a feeling that for some reason there was a link in my brain saying that if I would scuba dive, I would die. It was really severe fear for me. It was a real problem. And so it follows my journey of how I overcame that because I decided that the best way to get over a fear of scuba diving would be to become a scuba diving instructor. My first dives were spent crying into my mask and needing hypnotherapy. Oh my goodness. Uplifting read to encourage people never to quit and to follow their dreams. And there's some quite unexpected moments in there, which I will say nothing about what happened, but uh, 
people will find out when they read it. Superb. Check that out, guys. If you, again, follow the links below and uh, and please do go and check that out because, again, even if you're coming from a, a shark point of view, you know, the the work that Kat's done in, in the shark world and how she made those leaps, that is definitely, surely a good read for you. The most important thing is finding what you're good at and everyone has got a natural talent at something. And if you can figure out what it is you're good at and also what you love to do, I think the world's your oyster. You just have to have the knowledge of that and then just find a way forward that will just take you step by step towards whatever your dream is. Because everyone has different abilities and different dreams, but collectively they can all make a difference. So never quit, never quit. Even if you're burnt out, just find a different thing to do. (laughs) Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, I would love if we can speak to you again at some point and and get you back on the podcast. Uh, We've got a lot of members out there. There's like 45,000 plus members now, and I know they will absolutely eat up the things you're doing and putting out there. So thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it. It's my pleasure, and I'd love to come back, come back and talk more that'd be superb well we're just about out of time now so i want to thank cat again just for your time and if guys if you are not a member of the white shark interest group or anything you hear today or on the other episodes is of interest for you please do head over to facebook and just search the white shark interest group we are 46,000 members strong community sharing information knowledge education pictures videos all the cool great white shark stuff Uh, You can also find us on Instagram at whiteshark underscore interest group. And we have a website, which is whitesharkinterestgroup.com. So if you are listening to the podcast and you're not a member, as you enter the group and request to join, we always ask a question about why you want to join. If you've come by this podcast, then please do give us a shout out and say, heard the podcast and thought I'd check out the group. And we'll, uh, we'll be happy to see you in there sharing the knowledge. So with that said, one more thanks again today to Kat for a fantastic interview. Check out all the links below. And we will see you on the next episode.